Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Well, warm greetings from Northwest Germany. My name is Dong Wang, and I'm the hostess for today's interview with Dr. Theodore Tudoroyal and Dr. Anna Kuchileva about their newly edited book, China in the Global South, Impact and Perceptions, published by Springer in 2022. Theodore and Anna, welcome to my show. Maybe you could first tell us where you are at the moment and then make a self-introduction telling us where you were born, where you went to school, and how you became interested in editing a book on this important topic, so on and so forth. Thank you. Maybe I could begin. I'm currently at the University of Wolverhampton in the UK. I'm a senior lecturer in international relations here. I'm an interdisciplinary scholar whose work intervenes in international relations, development studies, energy security, and feminist-informed approaches to politics. My research centers on the nexus between politics and social-cultural contexts in international relations and develops a cross-disciplinary methodological toolkit around the concept of discursive politics. I'm particularly interested in politics in China, Russia, Canada, and the Central Asian region. I joined Wolverhampton in 2022. Before that, uh, I obtained my PhD in political science from the University of Alberta in Canada and held a postdoctoral fellowship at the National Research University Higher School of Economics in Russia, in Moscow. My name, difficult to pronounce, is Theodora Tudoroyev. I am a, a senior lecturer at the University of the West Indies, uh, the St. Augustine campus in uh, Trinidad and Tobago. I had my PhD from uh, Université de Montréal, obviously in Montreal, Canada. And I first taught in two Canadian universities, various international courses. Uh, international relations courses, but 11 years ago, I moved to the Caribbean. In terms of publications, uh, since 2016, I have published all in all eight books, five of which deal with China and more specifically its activeness in the global south. So we are very close to uh, the topic of the book we are going to talk about uh, today. Thank you so much, Theodore and Anna. Shall we first clear out of the way the three key concepts in your edited book, that is Global South, Agency, and Socialization? How would you define these important concepts? Probably we should start with Global South, and Global South is the critical category not synonymous to developing countries. <laughs> it's not substitute for developing countries. It's an independence and a important concept that allows us to look at international relations as a hierarchical structure and allows 
the critical power relations and focus on different complicated concepts such as identities, socially constructed meanings, shared meanings, and agency and socialization adds a lot into the discussion of global self and allows us to imagine this abstract space that we call global self. And again, it's not a substitute for developing countries. It's not a substitute for third world countries, second world countries. It's a very vibrant concept that allows to look at position of power and allows to disintegrate as well national and state humans. And maybe Theodore will talk about agency and socialization then. Yes. Well, I could, of course, start with some academic definitions of these concepts, but I think that a much better understanding would be reached if I just make a very, very brief um, presentation of the context into which, personally, I place China's actorness and the understanding of topics dealt with in the book. So, two weeks ago, before traveling to China, the head of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, noted that the Chinese Communist Party has a goal of constructing a new international order. Okay. My point of view is that this is the main dimension of China's foreign policy since the very accession to power of President Xi Jinping. And when you have such a great colossal objective you want to, to create a new Chinese-led international order, how do you do it? Well, my response is through a projection of normative power, a difficult concept at first view, which is not at all difficult. Normative power means to shape understandings of normal, to define what is normal. Yes, it is difficult to, to do it. It's easy to understand, it's difficult to do. How do you do it? Well, by, and I come to the concept of socialization, by, by socializing the political elites of the Belt and Road Initiative states. Again, this might sound very exotic, socialized. No, no, it's very basic. Through persuasion and material incentives, which are mainly represented by prestige infrastructure projects, you convince the political elites of targeted states that it is to their personal and group interest to be on your side, to, to allow themselves to be socialized by accepting your norms, norms about which I hope we will have the, the opportunity to talk a bit later. Once you have this Chinese norm internalized by the political elites of your partners, because they are in control of their states, they change the policies of their states, their countries, to fit your local, regional, and global interests. And this is how you, you being China, of course, are able to construct your international uh, order. So socialization is an instrument based on the use, in the Chinese case, of course, of frustration, but mainly prestige infrastructure projects, which are calculated to be inaugurated shortly before elections. Obviously, the government sees its political legitimacy and uh, electoral support increased, which makes it have a very favorable view of China. Other factors, other material incentives are added, which range from uh, bribes to political influence. They are all customized very skillfully 
to fit each country's conditions. And yes, they allow for the internalization of Chinese norms by those elites, even if this stays at what Jeffrey Chekhov called type one role-playing socialization, but those are technicalities. Okay. Now, in this context, as the impression would be that nobody can act against this process because you have China with its huge resources going and trying to impose its norms on local political elites, which of course will accept them and nobody can stop this. The situation and our co-edited book uh, shows in much detail uh, this aspect. Uh, the situation is uh, very different in fact. The most important at first you a subnational group sent by this process, the elites are tempted and strongly incentivized to accept China's norms. But there are very many other subnational groups, socio-economic groups. Some of them uh, see their interests endangered by the Chinese economic presence. Okay. And agency coming to uh, the other concept is precisely the ability to ultimately challenge constraints, okay, to act otherwise than conditions that somebody might uh, qualify as structural compel you to act, okay. You do have this pressure coming from China, which is uh, just make it through the, um, the national political elites that work as transmission belts, still, still, very many subnational groups show that small actors have agency have their own agency, their own ability to, to act based on their own interests, which are very differently constructed from those of the political elites. And hence, you get uh, an outcome which is not always necessarily based on the triumph of Chinese instruments of socialization and therefore on the unimpeded construction of the Chinese international order. But of course, we will have the opportunity to talk more detail about this. Thank you so much. What I particularly like about the book is exactly what you just mentioned, that is the agency of the Global South and also the subnational level actors, uh, their role. So in a sense, uh, it is quite the Sinocentric approach. So your edited volume contains 12 chapters, mostly by younger authors uh, that cover a wide range of nation states and subnational experiences with the People's Republic of China, PRC. I, as I said a moment ago, I particularly appreciate your approach means the proactive side of the Global South Agency. How did you come up with the idea of putting together such an impressive uh, volume? What is the book about? Could you tell us a little bit more? Should I begin? Well, actually, the process of uh, putting the chapters together and constructing the book was long and very difficult. So, honestly, I was telling myself repeatedly that I could have written myself half of, of a book. Yeah, so we started in uh, 2016 and leaving aside the inherent obstacles. So the point was to have an extreme diversity in terms of topics and in terms of contributors. Even if the topics are very 
different. If contributors are all, say, Chinese, Western, whatever, and you see books edited, say, by Italians about China's actions somewhere, or things like that. No, uh, our approach was very different. We wanted diversity. And in addition to that, we wanted field work. And you will see that uh, almost all chapters are based on field work, uh, which should be unpublished and which should analyze explicitly the impact and perception of China's actions, uh, which in a way compelled us to move towards younger researchers who haven't yet published the same thing in many articles and books and just uh, repeat once more what they have uh, already made public a long time ago. And we were quite successful in that, except that a number of contributors, so some of them gave up. Some of them did deliver chapters, which were not the chapters initially promised. Now, uh, the COVID crisis in part had its uh, unfortunate impact because people planning to do field research would not complete that field research. And at times they simply said, uh, I quit. At times they did send chapters, but the chapters were about, say, diplomatic relations, about a completely different dimension of the bilateral relation between their country and China, and they did not fit. But still, I think that we succeeded in bringing together a very diverse group of scholars. The fieldwork was done in nine countries, and these nine countries range from the Caribbean to the Russian Far East, from Madagascar to Papua New Guinea. We cover very, very diversified countries, and the theoretical approaches from which uh, these analyses um, were made are equally diversified international relations, political geography, government development studies, anthropology, cultural studies, media studies, and so on. And the authors themselves, as I said, they are very diverse in terms of their country of origin, language, mother, mother tongue, cultural background, scholarly background, and personal notes. This was very interesting. I, I did talk on Skype with people located, say, in Suva, in the Fiji Island. Uh, there was a diversity which uh, normally you never uh, encounter. In the book itself, and I will stop after just presenting the three parts. So there's the first part about China's image and reception in the global south. Okay. This has in part been already done by various uh, scholars in various publications, but we have very different approaches centered on very different countries and regions. The second part is about China as a dividing factor within countries of the global south, I would say inside each country, the global south, where indeed the agency of uh, some national actors is most visible. But we do not want to give the impression that nothing is set from above, let's put it that way, that there is no, uh, absolutely no structural constraint, that subnational actors are perfectly free to do what they want to. No, 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 they are not. And this is why we have a third part where structural features of the local country okay, are analyzed as an element that favored or on the contrary made it more difficult the acceptance of Chinese presence, which I think it's an interesting dimension that very few scholars have explored previously. Okay, I will stop here. I just would like to add to this that being very diverse, uh, all chapters are brought together by the method of case studies, and it's a very important epistemological lens 
we're not looking at global south from the bird's eye view we're looking at specific case studies and this allows to bring diversity not only from uh, the point of quality contribution but also diversity in terms of global south this critical space that they've talked about it's very diverse and it's very often homogenized and very often presented as a shingle unit and one of our goals was to use case studies as an epistemological tool to show that global self is in fact very different and has different structures, powers, a social dynamic, political dynamic that brings together this phenomenon of global self. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the empirically based approach as well in this book. As we know, the PRC tends to impose claims on foreign nationals of Chinese ancestry and the global south. Your edited book presents a much richer picture of China's successes, failures, and most importantly, tactics on those two fronts in Africa, including uh, Madagascar, Mexico, Argentina, Papua New Guinea, Trinidad and Tobago, Indonesia, Colombia, and Krimoya, uh, Russia. PRC's discursive politics, actual media and industrial operation and the varied reception among the locals in many of your cases appear to have deviated from its self-proclaimed win-win and leadership in the Global South. How did you arrive at this rather uncommon conclusion Speaking of my own experience, I would like to ask further this question along the line. It's in terms of PRC's foreign aid, for example. Some students believe that compared to OECD's practices, the PRC does not attach any political strings to their or Chinese loans and other forms of foreign aid to the global south. We know this is not true, but I find it very difficult to persuade actually many PhD students to realize um, the actual situation is the opposite. So may I ask, why is such an assumption false? I think the story is more nuanced uh, and we see China evolving from China that could say only yes to do the Western liberal order that was most accurately described by John Ekenberry as easy to join, hard to overturn. We now see China that can and even wants to say no and China is crafting a new space for itself in the international system and becoming more assertive in its relations with other countries. And the Chinese discursive politics of development cooperation emphasizes solidarity with the global self as the Chinese leaders such as Zhou Enlai were emphasizing solidarity with the third world back in 1960s and 70s. 
and we see this project evolving, the project of China as a pragmatic anti-imperialist member of developing countries' community. And as this project evolves, Chinese representatives, as well as many observers inside and inside China, argue that China offers unconditional financing for diverse development projects in the global south. However, it's very obvious that it is not the lack of political and social conditionalities, but the nature and objectives and implications that distinguish China from traditional Western donors. China doesn't care much about good governance. China is not trying to interfere in ideological structure uh, that recipient countries build. However, recipients of the development aid uh, loans, investments, must respect China's core interests, support the idea of China's peaceful rise, and most recently, more and more China's partners encouraged to look up to the China model by Xi Jinping. And the China-led self-self cooperation becomes a fertile environment for these political conditionalities, for conditionalities that encourage global self to accept China as a new leader that presents a new model of globalization. And the discursive dominance of the win-win cooperation and new strings of touch financing narratives does not imply that countries of the global south perceive China's development finance programs and ambitions on big, grandiose cooperation projects such as BRI as politically neutral. And our volume shows really well that those projects are not politically neutral. And importantly, that recipients and host countries, they don't see those projects as politically neutral. There is this complexity of images of China in the global south and complexity and diversity of cooperation models. However, it is very obvious as Theodore already mentioned that China wants global self to socialize into globalization models and globalization ideas and normative structures that China is currently promoting. And this is all about China's future and China not hiding its capacity, but very confidently seeking to lead and seeking to be recognized as a leader. More specifically, speaking about the norms. Now, when I talked earlier about China projecting normative power, obviously, a normative power shaping understandings of normal, normative power is based on norms, on a normative package. And it is within the structure of this normative package that you can easily identify elements that respond to the question we uh, are now uh, examining. So. On paper, if you watch only the Chinese side, China only has the five principles of peaceful coexistence, okay? Milk and honey, win-win South-South cooperation, mutual respect for each other's territorial integrity, etc., equality and cooperation for mutual benefit. China would be the first great power in the history of humankind, giving you everything because they love you, okay? Now, uh, you might be tempted to say, uh, let's be serious. Let's be serious. This is a joke. No, this is not entirely a joke, okay? This is propaganda. But importantly, this is also relationality, Wang Xi, 
okay, the fact that is uh, the Confucian tradition of China domestically and internationally to emphasize relationships as opposed to short-term material gains. Okay, so the idea of creating a good relationship with your partners is, in my opinion, an important engine of setting up and showing to everybody these beautiful five principles. But these five principles were created back in 1954, but were first presented by Trail Light when negotiating with India. Next year in 55, they were a bit transformed and inserted among the 10 principles adopted at the conference of Bandung. Very beautiful. And in 62, when China had the border war, which allowed it to defeat India, Nehru, uh, the Indian leader was puzzled. How can they, on the one hand, speak about the five principles of peaceful coexistence and at the same time attack us and take our land away? Okay. Well, this is because China has always had more than one normative set, okay, which always included since 54 the five principles of peaceful coexistence, but also added something else. I want to get back to history, to the, their struggle against the Soviet Union and all the rest, but that was another set of principles, for example. Today, they have a very clear other set uh, of complementary norms, which they never made public explicitly, but which can be easily identified if you watch what China's actions are. Okay. And I'm talking mainly about the Global South and the Belt and Road Initiative. First of all, they have one major norm, a general norm, which is simply that cooperation with China needs to be established and developed because it is genuinely beneficial to the target country in general and to its elites in particular, as a group and individually. And those material incentives are used to convince members of the political elite and basically everybody in power, that this is a good norm, eh? because they do benefit personally and as the group, and therefore they have absolutely no reason to reject uh, China's advances. But on top of that, you have three subsets of particular norms, political, economic, and social, that are beneficial to China only. Okay. There is a political subset that without any interference from us, was presented by a respondent here in Trinidad as no Taiwan, no Dalai Lama, no Tiananmen Square. Okay. We shall not have relations with Taiwan. We shall not, you shall not give a, an entry visa to the Dalai Lama and you shall not mention the Tiananmen Square. Okay. Some scholars call this diplomatic uh, conditionality because this is a conditionality. But on this Taiwan Dalai Lama Tiananmen, um, to this you should add a Chinese-friendly attitude in international and multilateral institutions, conferences, public debates. Okay, you are expected to support China's point of view. This is a political subset. These are norms, but they can be also perceived as conditionalities because in most cases they are imposed as conditionalities on any partner state that might want to join Belt and Road Initiative to get development aid and so on, uh, in terms of what we've uh, just spoken about. Now, the economic subset is about Chinese firms and more specifically about China's uh, state-owned enterprises. Okay? Their activity in your country uh, shall not be hampered. You should create a favorable framework that should be political, economic, legal, and informal with their actions. 
And whenever possible, you should replace the normal business pattern based on bidding with something based on government to government agreements. Okay. And this is systematically followed by China. Chinese companies do not start by coming to a country. It is their government that contacts the local government. They reach, um, so first they negotiate secretively, and then they reach an agreement which is never published. The Chinese side prevents its publication, setting a, a short list for whatever pro project is under consideration. That project typically is called development aid without being so. Always there are loans, very seldom investment, and the loans themselves seldom are at preferential rates. But this allows the local government to present it as development aid and to accept China's conditions because these conditions are very favorable to those elites. As I said, they include prestige infrastructure projects, which will be inaugurated shortly before elections. But on the Chinese side, this economic subset allows Chinese state-owned enterprises to penetrate foreign markets to be very active and very competitive because they are shortlisted. The shortlist for such projects always has only Chinese companies and in the Caribbean and many other areas, it has one Chinese state-owned enterprise. This contributes to the construction and development of a Chinese-centered globalization from above. And finally, there is a social subset, which is very basic. You shall not regulate the inflow or economic activities of Chinese entrepreneurial migrants in your country. And this has created the Chinese-centered globalization from below, of made up of China's entrepreneurial migrants, who, unlike other end traders from the non-hegemonic globalization from below, are influenced, at times controlled, and work for China's interest in many ways. Okay, This social subset also can be, at worst, turned into a conditionality. And very briefly, there was a case in Ghana where tens of thousands of uh, Chinese entrepreneurial migrants were on Ghanaian soil illegally and were illegally mining gold. So their presence was illegal and their economic activity was illegal and very detrimental to the local population. The government didn't want to act against them because it was socialized by China, but public, again, subnational agency, the public became progressively so anti-Chinese, revolved by what was going on, that the, the regime was on the point of losing power. And they had to expel those Chinese, actually just a small part of them, of Chinese gold miners, after warning everybody and telling China, said, no, no, this is our uh, social subset, normative subset, okay? You shall not regulate the inflow or economic activities of our entrepreneurial migrants. They stalled a three billion US dollar loan to Ghana. They wanted to renegotiate the conditions and they imposed harsh visa, condition, uh, visa uh, restrictions on small merchants from Ghana who depend, tens of thousands, who depend on going to uh, China to buy the merchandise they sell in their uh, villages. Everybody in Ghana and abroad understood. Okay. From that moment on, nobody harassed uh, the Chinese entrepreneurial migrants. And as there are different situations where African diplomats explain that while going to China, that's the matter with what business, 
at least once or twice during their visit of China, they were toured, they were shown places and okay, but at least once or twice, a Chinese official took them for a brief conversation where he explained, you see, we are doing so many things for you, for your country. We develop you, we give you development assistance. So please be kind to our entrepreneurial migrants. Be lenient whenever it happens that they might break the law a bit. Okay. So this is not an accident. This is a conditionality, a very strong conditionality, which of course at first view is just a social normative subset, which is part of China's more general uh, normative apparatus associated with uh, the socialization of political elites. But you do have conditionalities all over the place. Thank you for the comprehensive answer to this very important question. To those people who still believe in the lack of political conditions, uh, I would say just to give a very simple the example, the reality. You look at the PRC's insistence on one China, the policy and the ever-shrinking number of uh, countries recognizing the Republic of, uh, of China in Taiwan, one would uh, easily come to the conclusion that actually what the PRC has written on paper is very different from what is actually practiced. So we could now shift to a related topic that is about democratic values. We know, in fact, because of the increasing PRC global influence, the global dictatorship, despotism have been strengthened. So then the question is, uh, despite PRC's material progress, its own nationals often point uh, to the lack of uh, a moral anchor in China itself and in its global outreach during the last four decades also. Do moral norms and fundamental democratic values still matter in the myth and diplomacy of uh, peace and development between the PRC and the Global South? How can democratic values and institutions uh, sustain in the face of a-liberal forces hell-bent on structurally abusing the openness and democratic nature of liberal institutions and countries? This is not new. Communist countries always said that they are real, really democratic countries, while the West, uh, for one thousand reasons, is not. And China simply proposes its own package of definitions and understandings concerning democracy and human rights, uh, which obviously fit those of many other heavily authoritarian regimes. Now, personally, even if democracy uh, is a, might be considered a relative and permanently evolving term and its understandings have historically changed in time. Okay, human rights should be perhaps something easier to define. When you take one million Muslims from uh, Xinjiang and you uh, place them into re-education camps because they are Muslim, 
okay, you would expect people in other Muslim countries and people in consolidated democracies elsewhere than China, of course, to be really outraged by this situation. And what you see is that very, very few countries, all of them in the West, and then have condemned this measure taken by uh, the Chinese government and the initiatives at uh, the United Nations of those countries have been defeated because more states supported China. Now, what is interesting in such cases is that if you take, say, Muslim countries and even certain uh, democracies in consolidated uh, democracies in the global south, you do see among the civil society and the population at large uh, in countries like Turkey, okay, which is hardly a democracy, but uh, you do see a lot of uh, Turkey's uh, uh, citizens where where there are very many there are very many Uyghurs, and the situation is very well known. Of being very, very vocally against China's policies in Xinjiang. But the government of Turkey, as the government of basically almost all Muslim states and many democracies in the global south, never say one word to the Chinese leadership about what's going on uh, in those re-education camps, which has a very clear explanation in my opinion. The successful, the very successful socialization of the political elites of those Muslim or democratic states that prefer to see their own group and personal interests and close their eyes to what China is doing in terms of democracy and human rights, unfortunately. Thank you. Anna, would you like to add more to the question? I slightly would disagree here with my call for I think this question also lies beyond scope of our volume because our volume was focusing on China's soft power, for example, and how China's soft power power has patches and how China fails to deliver its message of being an alternative to the liberal or not so liberal international order. And I think chapters in the volume really capture it very well. Me and Zhang's chapter about Confucian Institutes and Chinese culture education in Madagascar, for example, shows that even teachers who work in Confucian Institutes fail to convey this slick and homogenous narrative of Chinese culture that we see so very often in Chinese propaganda. And I think besides asking whether China wants to challenge liberal Western liberal order. Uh, we also uh, need to ask whether this challenge is successful and whether China indeed has an alternative that can undermine the existing international structure. And again, lies completely outside the scope of our volume, but I felt like I should add, add this here that it's also about the crisis of their liberal international order and crisis of the international system that we now have to witness and very little we as citizens can do in terms of our contribution to the things that are happening today. Great. Thank you so much. You both actually have addressed the different dimensions of these questions regarding democratic values, whether they are matter or not. 
they matter to us or not anymore. I appreciated it. I think uh, Theodore basically emphasized the socialization side of the PRC and the Global South. That's why we see like uh, the Turkish government uh, on earth, uh, they would uh, continuously, at least uh, officially, endorse the PRC's economic development model. And also, of course, regarding the Xinjiang human rights abuses. So and then I think I also appreciate Anna for addressing the imperfect situation within democratic societies that has to be addressed as well. So I think it's very helpful for us to understand the comprehensive realities in different parts of the world regarding the PRC. Now, shall we turn to the COVID-19 and our change the world? Uh, the reason I came up with uh, some questions in this regard, it strikes the reader that most of the authors conducted their fieldwork, including interviews, a few years before the outbreak of COVID-19. Now, as you mentioned, how difficult it has been or it was to organize so many authors in many countries, at least nine countries, to write up a comprehensive empirical evidence chapter for your volume. We often hear people say that our world is different now in the post-COVID-19 world, uh, if we can say that. Uh, some governments have already declared the very end of the masking policy. So how have the pandemic and new international politics and economic situations including decoupling and de-risking from the PRC affected your own research area respectively. For example, Trinidad and Tobago's dealings with PRC's tied aid and Sino-Russian relations from the perspective of the Russian Far East. So, as always, there is rupture and continuity. You, you cannot say that nothing has changed. You cannot say that everything has changed. A book, edited book of this type that would take into consideration post-COVID changes probably will be ready in a few years, in a few good years, okay, just to, to have the time to go there. Not to mention that the situation hasn't yet stabilized and doing interviews now might be too early to catch indeed the impact of these changes. And you have COVID, you have the rise of the populist wave with all the impact that especially President Xi of President Trump in the United States has triggered. So it's not only the COVID crisis alone. Out of all this mix, when speaking about Trinidad and countries similar to Trinidad, it is very, very visible that China hasn't the money it used to have. So China and its Belt and Road Initiative, on which its expansion has relied since 2015 or so, when uh, the initiative started to be actually implemented, is threatened on the one hand by America's Indo-Pacific strategy under President Biden, which is 
a different thing from the chaotic strategy of President Trump, even if the name and uh, the main features remain. But also by uh, China's own diminished growth rates, the effects of the zero COVID policy and the problems of very many less developed Belt and Road Initiative countries that are unable to pay back the loans they received from China. And this is why already in 2020, funding from the initiative declined by 48% and has stabilized since then at half of the level before uh, the COVID crisis. Which means that here in Trinidad, you do see older projects continuing to be constructed, but nothing new. Okay, there is absolutely no new prestige infrastructure projects uh, proposed by China simply because they don't have the money, which has diminished the incentives for good politicians to antagonize a much more aggressive America. Before the COVID crisis, before Trump, the Americans didn't bother to put pressure on countries accepting the Belt Initiative projects. There was money in China, so you had all the conditions to allow yourself to be socialized by the Chinese. Now, it's not that you have given up this socialization all of a sudden, but you have adopted a position of wait and see. The attitude is cautious. You don't want to make enemies in America. You are not sure that China will uh, again uh, handle the money. So you are waiting for the situation to become more and more clear. Um, the problem is for China, if uh, I expand a bit framework of the analysis, the problem for, for China and the Belt and Road Initiative is that much of the Indo-Pacific strategy, which is not hard power related, you have the Quad, you have the AUKUS, but the Indo-Pacific strategy under President Biden has developed a, a massive component, which is directed precisely to countering the influence of Belt and Road Initiative on infrastructure projects. Now, this is only the beginning, but the goal is to deprive China from the almost monopoly on a generous infrastructure funding in the global south. As that is a very serious danger because at that point, political elites in the Belt and Road Initiative will have the choice between a Chinese financed infrastructure projects or a Western financed one. And by Western, I understand Indo-Pacific, which means United States, European Union, Japan, even India. In order to compensate for this uh, a very dangerous American move, China has launched since 2021 the Global Development Initiative that should increase the foreign aid component, the Global Security Initiative, and a month ago, the 15th of March, the Global Civilization Initiative. Now, all of these are just at their very, very early stages, and we cannot, nobody can tell us today how this will develop, but it's very clear that the struggle it that way between uh, China and America, and I'm uh, talking about this in terms of counter-hegemon versus hegemon, is acquiring new dimensions that go beyond the, the infrastructure-centered battle of the nation. For the time being, uh, returning to the political needs of uh, Trinidad and Tobago and similar countries, they are waiting. They are looking forward to new opportunities. They hope they, they will be able to take money from both sides. But their enthusiasm towards China has diminished considerably. The previous prime minister was happy to go to China and to say uh, at a meeting there that the population of Trinidad and Tobago hails China dream and uh, all the rest, which here nobody did hail actually. The current prime minister, while also taking a few years ago uh, loans from China, seldom mentions China. 
not that he is against China, but but older funding continues. But he would very much like new funding because elections come closer, and he would like to open something to inaugurate something. So. I would agree with Theodore in terms of fully being not their major change in uh, region, region, and well, more broadly. Starting from the late 2017, the rivalry between China and the U.S. has brought Russia and China closer together. But it hasn't fundamentally transformed their relations due to consciousness of both countries and Russia's limited ability to provide substantial support to China in areas such as the economy trade or technology. And it was pretty stable even during the COVID, even though the Russian Far East, as many other uh, regions in the world that were closely connected to China in terms of trade and economy, lost a lot of revenues. It was still very much business as usual, even back in 2021 already. However, in February, Russia invaded Ukraine, and this is the major change. Uh, in February 2022, there was the first in-person meeting between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, and it appeared to signal a new phase in Sino-Russian relations following the pandemic. And there were a lot of experts in Russia who were very excited about this new phase. And there was a lot of experts and uh, local elites and local entrepreneurs in the Russian Far East and Primoria specifically uh, who were excited about their opportunities that this closer relations uh, with China could promise them. Uh, and. Chinese expressed support for Russia's legitimate security concerns and Russia backed China in Asia and backed Belt and Road Initiative. So it seemed that post-summit narratives were changing to uh, new limits or new red lines. And this obviously meant a lot of opportunities for Russia's regimes that border China. And the war started. Russia invaded Ukraine, and for the whole Russia and Far East being no exception, uh, this means that there is no opportunities, and the drastic changes in social, economic uh, development, drastic changes in political development, because Russia is becoming increasingly more authoritarian. And in terms of international dynamic for the Russian Far East, the drastic change in Russia's political dynamic and geopolitical aspirations means that the Chinese neighbors are the only prospective partners for political elites because South Korea and Japan joined the anti-war sanctions. A year into the war in Ukraine, China finally elaborated its stance on the conflict, releasing their 12-point document proposing a peace plan for Russia and Ukraine. So it's clear that China is not neutral. China is pro-Russia neutral. And Russian Far East and other Russian regions, they would be continuously forced to focus on China as the major cooperation partner because China is one of the few countries that still engage in trade, e-commerce, and other activities 
and haven't closed border with Russia and such. So if there will be tourists, for example, in Vladivostok ever soon, those would be Chinese tourists uh, because there is no flights anymore to Vladivostok uh, from South Korea and Japan even though they are so very close to Primoria geographically. So my point here is that it's very far beyond the pandemic now. And the biggest challenge to development of any agency on a regional level, Russia, is now the war and geopolitical ambitions of Vladimir Putin's regime, and specifically the invasion of Ukraine that is ongoing and Unfortunately, this is not the pandemic. Thank you so much. Theodore and Anna, we've taken up a lot of your time. What are you working on now? In 2021, Rupert published my first book, China's Energy Security in Relations with Petrostate, Oil as an Idea. This book examines the development of bilateral energy relations between China and the two oil-rich countries, Kazakhstan and Russia. I argue in this book that energy security has neither an inherent meaning nor an intrinsic value, but more fluid and the material realities of energy occur their meanings and significance only in the process of narrative making and discursive symbolization. And moving forward and drawing on this research, I'm currently working on a study that explores visual representations of energy security in oil in China, Russia, and other countries. Overall, my research trajectory is not that lineal, but is still coercive. So I'm moving beyond Chinese politics, and my interests are shifting to problematizing gendered political structures and hierarchies. And this is where uh, my other recent projects are rooted. Yeah, congratulations. Uh, the topics you are pursuing are very interesting and important. So I'm looking forward to reading more of your new work. And, uh, and what about you, Theodore? Well, uh, unlike uh, Hanya, I'm, I'm sticking with uh, Chinese topics. This is a book that I've already completed some time ago, but uh, these things, as you know, take time. Has been recently, recently accepted for publication by Ravage. It is about the geopolitical aspects of the Bertrand Initiative. And uh, in that book, uh, as already earlier, another analysis of China, but in when you speak about uh, the geopolitics of the Bertrand Initiative, you deal with um, security matters. And this becomes a very obvious aspect. On the one hand, you have the China that is constructing a new international order benevolently. Okay? The China that is the workshop of the Western Central globalization from above, of the neoliberal globalization, which is also peacefully constructing two Chinese globalizations, one from above, one from below, which is de-territorialized, which is, or at least claims to be Hard, tries hard to be benevolent, uh, that claims to, to, to base all its actions on win-win cooperation, and which actually uses normative power that is based on relationality, Guangxi, and therefore it's the most uh, peaceful and friendly approach you might expect from a new hegemon. But at the same time, you see a China that threatens militarily on a daily basis, Taiwan, 
that has militarized the South China Sea and wants to take over 90, or as much as 90% of uh, its area, that uh, has adopted brutal policies domestically in Xinjiang with debate in Hong Kong against democratic and human rights activists in China itself, which is territorial. So this China is not at all territorialized. It is very territorial. It is not benevolent, does not try to be benevolent, shows that it is very selfish. It has no idea of uh, win-win cooperation. It's aggressive. It wants to take over territory from neighbors through hard power. No, no active power. No, no, no. Military. Now, the first China acts like a 21st century style postmodern global power. The second China acts as a 19th century style territorial empire. This is the same China, the same people, and possibly the same oligarchy meeting might take first decisions based on normative power, postmodern global China, and five minutes later, let's move on the agenda to something concerning South China Sea, and there we act as a territorial empire which is interested in the imperial control of land. Take, of course, you don't have physically two Chinas. You have two Chinese identities. And this does exist in as a literature on international relations, multiple identities of the same international relations actor. And this, as you can imagine, is not a very simple uh, topic to deal with. But uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm close to the completion of the long chapter on the um, territorial empire, but Actually, the most difficult one, I believe, was a chapter about the theory associated with uh, this. Yeah. It will take some good months, half a year or more, <laughs> till completion, anyway. Thank you so much, Isidor. The topics sound really fantastic because very often I feel the PRC, of course, has many faces. Mainly, I feel it hasn't really learn things positive from the past. It only picked up these things really bad, those bad, bad guys in the past, like in the 19th, as you said, 19th and early 20th century, but then couched in the 21st century's terms. So fascinating. And of course, and as a topic, I mean, it's very timely, fascinating as well. So I am also equally looking forward to reading your new work. So I think our time is up and I would like to thank you both for spending the quality time with me chatting about your newly edited book. So I wish uh, Theodore a good afternoon and I wish uh, Anna a good evening. Thank you. Good evening to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, goodbye for now.